Thank you for tuning into In the Fight with Bo Templin. This week on the podcast, this was something completely different than anything I've ever done before. It's probably the craziest story I've ever been told. On this week's episode, I have Jared Gordon. Jared is a UFC contender in the featherweight division at 145 pounds over there. He just is coming off of a very nice victory over Danny Chavez, and he looked great in the octagon. But to be honest, guys, this was not a podcast about what goes on in the octagon. Jared has an incredible life story, and like how he got to the UFC is one of the most fascinating up and down roller coaster rides you're ever going to hear and it's tragic it's sad it's a story of perseverance it's a it's a lot of things I don't even know if I can really describe it to you I just really want to present it just as it is and I tried to let him have the floor I didn't want to tell this story for him so I I really hope you guys give this chance this episode a chance it's it's really something special. So without further ado, this week on In the Fight with Bo Templin is Jared Flash Gordon. This is 1.37 p.m. Stories of hustle and grind from the intersection of culture, style, music, and sports. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. It is Monday, March 8th. It is around 11.30 here in San Diego, California. And I'm not really sure how to do this introduction, man. I mean, obviously you could start with a fighter for the UFC, Jared Flash Gordon. He's coming off of an impressive win over Danny Chavez. And yeah, the future looks bright. But let's be honest, that's not really the story that is so captivating to so many people. And man, I'm honored that you're willing to come on and and talk about your story because this is one of the most interesting, dynamic, wild, up and down rides you could possibly be on. So Jared, I want to thank you for the time. I'm very appreciative of all this and and really your openness to talk about all this stuff. No problem. You're you're good people, man. I, I really do appreciate it. So- Congrats on the win. I think that's first and foremost, congrats on the win. Um, you know, obviously, like right away, the first question you get asked in the post-fight presser was like, all right, so what happened with the weight cut? And I'm not going to ask what happened with the weight cut. I've never cut weight in my life. Like I'm I'm your average Joe sitting on the couch, and I think it's so easy for people to like talk shit, say whatever, but they're not the ones going through it. So instead of saying what happened with the weight cut, I was kind of curious, like when in the week do you know that it's going to be a tough one? Or is it like a week out? Maybe you're, you're at practice and you're like, yo, I'm not exactly where I want to be. When do you know that like it could be close? Um, so for me, I was like on target. I was, I was, so I fought in July. I made 145 even. I didn't even need the extra pound um, allowance, but. I, I knew that I started to get the feeling the night before the weigh-in late that I might have a problem on my hands. Uh, it just wasn't coming off like it normally does for some reason. Uh, and, you know, we're already dehydrated at that point And it just I just wasn't sweating good. And uh, there was a point. So I did like one big cut. I got down to like 151 or something like that. And I was like, all right, I got five pounds. I got this. And then I took a break. And then like three, four hours later, I started again. And uh, I got in the sauna and I just, I was in there for like 35, 40 minutes. I just wasn't sweating. And normally I get in the sauna and I start sweating within like three, four minutes. And like all that heat and that just like burning and just, I was dry and so thirsty and hungry and I just, I wasn't even glistening. So my body, you know, sometimes the, the body just was like, no, we're not going to do this. And we're not going to sweat anymore. And uh, that's like, after that, that sauna session, I got out and I was like, oh man, like I didn't sweat at all. I got in the bath, hot bath and just wasn't coming. Just, I just wasn't sweating. And uh, I started to feel really crappy. You start getting anxiety. You start, you know, you're like, oh, I'm done with this. And, um, 
you know, I could have pushed maybe another pound or so and I would have killed myself and to do it. And I just figured, you know what, like, instead of risking my health and, you know, let's at least be able to fight and perform. And so that's when I decided to cut it, uh, stop cutting weight. And, and I told the UFC and I was like, Hey, like, can you get me in the UFC performance Institute? Can I use the sauna in there? Cause the sauna is not saunas that they gave, they gave us like portable saunas. It just wasn't working. And they couldn't because of COVID restrictions. And uh, that's when I said, all right, well, I'm done. So, so, you know, so what would you do? Like if you were in charge of like an MMA league or something, like what would your rules be for weight cut? Cause like one championship has like non hydrated weight classes. The UFC's like taken away IVs over the last decade or so. Like if you were in charge based off of your life experiences, the people that you know and your knowledge, what would your set of rules kind of be? I mean, I think what they what they have set is pretty good. Like if you, you sign the, the contract to make a certain weight, if you don't make weight, then it's either the opponent will fight you, but you take percentage of the person's purse or they might not fight you. And I think that's where why the UFC gets upset, obviously, or any league, because, you know, what if you know, the guy came all the way to Vegas and you miss weight. And what if they don't want to fight you? Or the coaches say, no, we're not fighting him because he's, you know, he's heavier, uh, you know, and they don't want to lose the fight. You know, they don't want to lose a fight off the card. And then it, it looks bad for you, obviously missing weight. And, oh, you made this guy come out here and you couldn't be quote unquote professional enough to make weight. And, you know, so I gave up uh, $11,000 so, of my show money, which was a pretty substantial amount of cash, uh, you know, but I gave it to him and, you know, then it's like, all right, now you got to win because if you lose, it looks terrible. Like you, you miss weight and you lost. It's not a good look. Uh, but I went out there and I had a great performance and I crushed my opponent. So um, just another bump in the road, another learning lesson. And that's, you know, that's all I could take it for is a learning lesson. So, I mean, I guess I got to come in a little lighter or get smaller before camp starts and, and then start cutting from there. Uh, you know, but I was on target. And I, I was on the same target that I was on for the fight before where I made weight. So, I mean, you know, little things. What do you, what do you walk around ish at? What do you walk around ish at? Like 65, like eight yeah. weeks out, 60, yeah. you know, yeah. like maybe a little more, but, uh, so, I mean, you know, anything could, could, could change the direction of the weight cut, like, you know, cortisol levels, you're stressed out, you're, you know, whatever, like you're injured. It could be so many different variables that, that change, um, you know, the environment you're in. Like when I fought in Abu Dhabi in July, like it was so humid there. And like, I would open up right away and start sweating because it's so humid. I was in Vegas, it's super dry there. So it takes a, it takes a while for you to open up and start, start sweating. And I just, I, I just wouldn't open up anymore. So Whatever. Well, let's talk about like the actual performance of it because it was really good. You did everything you said you wanted to do that you were going to do. Like that was his almost picture perfect textbook, like Jared Flash Gordon win, as I feel like you're going to see. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, and before we like get into the backstory or whatever, when guys trash talk, or they're talking to you at the stare downs. That seems silly to me to talk to you that way because of everything that you've gone through in your life and you've dealt with. I would find it hard to imagine that any of that shit bothers you in the slightest. Am I wrong? Well, I mean, you know, he was talking, talking, and I got, you know, I got a little like heated and I, you know, it creates anxiety and it creates feelings. Uh, but, you know, I know going into the fight, like I'm prepared and, you know, he was supposed to be the better striker or on paper. He's a striker, uh, but I outstruck him on the feet as well. And, you know, he was supposedly like a great kicker and I landed double the kicks that he did. And uh, he threw always the calf kick and I came out blasting calf kicks. And, you know, and then I said I was going to hold him down and beat him up. And that's what I did. And, you know, I knew that I was the more well-rounded, better, more experienced fighter. So, um I told him, look, I'm going to hold you down and F you up. And, you know, that's what I went out and did. And, uh, you know, like, I don't have any hard feelings against Danny. I, I understand why he was upset. Uh, but it's funny because my teammate fought him and beat him. And that fight, Danny missed weight 
against my teammate by like three and a half pounds or something. So my friend was, my teammate was like, man, he was talking all that crap. And meanwhile, he's missed weight before. Like, so he came out and called me a fat bitch. And he was like, oh, you couldn't make weight, you fat bitch. I'm going to knock you out tomorrow. And I was like, well, I'm going to hold you down and kick your, you know, beat your ass. And that's what I did. And I beat him on the feet. So it was even more of a, I think a rub in his face. So I, I felt good. I, I went out there, I did what I said I was going to do, and I had a dominant performance, and, you know, it's the fight game. Yeah, so are you a fight fan? Like, I like I talked to Demetrius Johnson, right? And I'm like, yo, we were watching fights this weekend, and he said, I can't watch fights. Like, I'm just going to pick things apart. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. <laughs> and then some guys come on, and they're like, yo, dude, that fight was fucking crazy this weekend, blah, blah, blah. So where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? Are, are you a fight fan? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fight fan. Sometimes I get sick of fighting and I don't want to watch uh, or people want to talk about it. And I'm like, eh, I don't really feel like talking about fighting right now because that's all I do. But uh, yeah, I watch the fights when they're on and uh, I'm into it. You know, I'm a big uh, I watch kickboxing. I watch glory. I watch Muay Thai. I watch MMA. I watch jujitsu. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a fight fan, but, yeah, there are times where I'm like, eh, I don't really feel like talking about this or watching right now. Sure. So, I assume you watched them this weekend. I'd just be curious, like, because I get the heat of the moment. Like, I really try and empathize with fighters. Like, say they make a mistake. Like, the, the Peter Yan or the Peter Yan incident, right, where it's the illegal knee. I, I try and empathize with every single person in the situation because us sitting on the couch, we have no idea – what is going yeah. on. And I really don't think people understand how much they don't know. So I try and empathize with fire. So I, from a fighter's perspective, what do you make of that incident? Because from my perspective, that's as clear cut of a illegal knee DQ as it gets. I like from there on it, it there weren't many more questions for me to ask. And it seemed like you should have just called the fight right then and there. What, what did you kind of walk away with it? I mean, it was, pretty blatant looking uh and as the champion i figure you know he had to have known that he was a downed opponent uh well the ref uh, said it the ref said it like four seconds before he did it too right but like you said in the heat of the moment sometimes you just you just react and you know there was a point in my last fight where i almost need danny in the face while he was down but i pulled it and then herb dean after the fight was like thank you for not needing him while he was down because I would have had to have done something, you know? Um, but heat of the moment, never know what was going through Peter's head or the feelings he had, you know, in his body. And he just threw the knee. I doubt that his, and he was winning the fight. And I'm sure he knew that. I doubt that he was like, all right, I'm going to need this guy in the head, get disqualified and give my belt away on purpose. Um, there's no way he was thinking that. I think it was just more of a heat in the moment. He looked at his, you know, he was holding him there for a couple seconds. He looked at his co- his corners and maybe he misheard something or something like that. And he threw the strike. And But as the ref and, you know, you gotta, you gotta disqualify him because it was super blank. It wasn't like he was getting up and he threw the knee or like in a crazy scramble, like he was holding him there and threw the knee and connected hard. So, you got to disqualify him, unfortunately. Uh, and the thing is, if, if Algermain said, no, I'm going to fight, they would have taken points away. Uh, and then if he went on to win, everyone would say he's a superstar. Um, but if he went on to lose after the fifth round, they would say, oh, it was unfair. He took an illegal knee. So it goes both ways. But he was compromised no matter what after that. So how do you let the guy go on to fight? You got to, you got to call the fight. Um, so. Well, the funniest, do, the funniest thing I've seen. Yeah, they will rematch. The funniest thing I've seen though, is like, you know, the couch coaches at home saying, oh, he was acting or he deserves an Oscar. I'm like, you have never taken a knee to the face in your life. Yeah. By Peter Yan, nonetheless, <laughs> who's an amazing striker. Like, let me hold you down or have Peter hold you down. And just blast you in the head with the knee. Tell me how you feel after. And then tell me if you think you can go on to fight in a high-level championship fight in the last round and a half. So After I mean, already being exhausted out of your mind. like I've, It seemed like from the, you know, the novice perspective that Aljo brought a crazy pace for the first two rounds. And he 
probably wasn't going to be able to sustain that like over the course of five. So he was already gassed and then to get smacked in the face by a knee. So I don't know. I It seemed easy decision for me, but I was just kind of curious uh, your yeah. take on it. I mean, I thought it was fair what they did. And the and Algerain had gotten knocked down in the first round, I think it was. So like he was already probably a little concussed. So to take that knee after and the exhaustion was just, you know, you got to call the fight, you know? Um, so I guess now's an appropriate time. Like we can kind of get into your life backstory because it's as interesting and deep and intense as it really gets. And I'm going to be honest with you, Jared, like, you know, I went to journalism broadcasting school and I'm not sure I was ever really prepared for like stories like this. You know, you, you get told like, oh, there's a new 7-Eleven opening down the street. And that's like the stories that we were told or taught to tell. So doing something like this is really intense. And I just don't want to fuck it up in any way. So I really want you to like, just make sure that at any point, I'm not miscommunicating anything that goes along. So, um, you know, I, I watched the like really long interview with Helwani um, from like 2018 where you it's, I mean, this is an hour long story. This could be a longer story than that. Even. Yeah. I don't know how to start this. I don't know. You've probably done this story so many times that I feel like you're (laughs) probably the best to like walk me through it in the most appropriate way. I I don't know how this really goes, but I I do want you to like, I just, I want to talk about it because it is incredible, man. Um, well, how in depth do you want to go? Yeah, it could be like six hours or it could be like 20 minutes. I will. I mean, again, you, you, you've done this story more than, than I have. I would say we probably can't do the six hour version as much as I would like to. And maybe someday you and I, we can do that face to face, but maybe we can start with a, a cliff note seems inappropriate. So I got this. Take it away then. So, I mean, I'm going to mention some part of it. Uh, when I was younger, because I think it's a huge part of yep. why I became or self-medicated, but um, I was in sleepaway camp. I was eight years old. I was sexually assaulted by a camp counselor, uh, full-on rape. Um, came home from sleepaway camp shortly after that. I think it was like that September. I just turned nine, September 6th, started swimming pot. Uh, like drinking beers. I hung out with like some older kids and I had an old, I have an older brother. So he was like, he was like dabbling and I would hang out with them. So it was just natural for me to go along with it. Um, And by the time I was 11, 12, I was like swimming pot every day, um, getting in trouble, just doing stupid kid stuff. Um, And then it progressed for me as I got older, started using experience other drugs a huge part of my story that I, I don't love to tell because, like, I don't like glorifying it um, was that I was, like, I sold a lot of drugs. So I always had drugs on hand to use. Um, but I thought, I always had this feeling inside of me that, like, school wasn't for me. I never wanted to go to college. I always had this, like, bigger feeling like there was something bigger for me. But at the time, I thought it was, all right, I'm going to sell a bunch of drugs, make a bunch of money and like open some sort of business and never have to go to college. And, you know, I'll be like self-made. So So was it a money, was it a money like motivator is why you were selling drugs? Or do you think you enjoyed like being on the other side of the game? Well, I guess both, but it was more of a money thing. Like I wanted money and, um, you know, so I was like selling narcotics when I was young, like 13, 12, 13, I was selling, selling cocaine and, um, you know, then, uh, my father's business in 2001, it burned down and it will explode and it killed three FDNY firefighters and it like injured like 60 other guys. And I was living in the North shore of Long Island, which is like a wealthy neighborhood or a wealthy area. And, uh, I moved from there to Queens to a story of Queens, which, you know, it wasn't as wealthy. It was closer to the business. Cause my parent, my father had to rebuild the whole business. And, um, you know, I had like a huge culture shock moving from Long Island. You know, I went to school with like all Italian, Irish and like Jewish white kids, you know, 
And then I went from that to, I was going to high school in Queensbridge, which is like the, la the largest housing projects in the country. Um, uh, like right, literally like a block outside of the Queensbridge housing projects is where I went to high school. So it's huge culture shock for me. And I didn't want to move to Queens. I wanted to save my friends. And I kind of used that as like a reason to rebel. Uh, and my parents were going through so much, you know, three dead FDNY guys, like 60 injured. My father was being sued for everything. Um, that took forever. The court case for that took like 12 years, all the dispositions. And then finally going to court uh, took forever. Well, we couldn't afford to live in Long Island anymore. So we moved to Queens, whatever. So as I, as I got older, my addiction and like my disease progressed and I started using more harder drugs. And when I was 17, I found, I graduated high school. I found fighting. I found MMA. And at the time, the ultimate fighter was getting really, really big. Uh, Forrest Griffin fought uh, Stephen Bonner and like everyone was, you know, blown away by it. And, uh, you know, I was watching Frankie Edgar at the time. He had just made his, UFC debut against Tyson Griffin. I was like, man, I, I would love to fight. And um, I wrestled uh, a little bit in, in middle school back in Long Island. And I uh, was like, I want to do this. And I found a gym in Queens. Uh, I joined up, started doing jiu-jitsu and boxing and stuff. And within like a couple months, the the coach there was like, Hey, you want to fight? And I was like, yeah, sure. So within four months of training, I had my first amateur fight. I was 17. I fought a 27 year old. My parents had to sign the waiver for me to fight. So, you know, I wasn't of age yet. And, um, I won, I fell in love with the sport. Um, and that was it. I was hooked. Shortly after that, I got injured. I hurt my neck and I started taking Vicodin. Like, not from a doctor. Like, my friend was selling bacon in. I was, you know, a couple of weeks went by, eight. I was eating 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 Vicodin in a day. And then I found Oxycontin. And that, and I started, like, doctor shopping. I had, like, multiple people going to doctors, and I would get all their scripts. So I had, like, thousands of pills. And uh, I was getting arrested a lot. I was getting a lot of trouble. and uh, But I was still fighting. And... At 22 years old. How? But how? Like, how were you able to continue training? And, like, I feel like your body wouldn't hold up that well. I mean, I just did it. There yeah. wasn't really, like, any thought process. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to fight. And I remember, like, weighing in for a fight. And then, like, for and as an amateur, you fought, like, a couple hours later. So I weighed in. I took, like, 10 Viking and I went and fought and won. And uh, it was just like, I don't know. I just had a knack for fighting, I guess. Um, so at like 21, I had given my friend a bunch of Oxycontin to sell. And he overdosed that night and died. Uh, so I like really lost my shit. And I started really using heavily. Um, but I decided to move to upstate New York to a gym called Bomb Squad in Ithaca, New York, like four hours from my house. Uh, Algermain Sterling trained there. John Jones trained there. A uh, bunch of other guys, Bellator, UFC fighters. Um, I was there for like a month and I was, I, I cleaned up, I sobered up. I was still smoking pot, but I wasn't like taking Oxycontin. Um, and they offered me a pro fight on like three days notice. And I took it and I made yeah. my, I made my debut with uh, CFFC, Cage Fury Fighting Championships. And I won, I won on three day notice. And, you know, that was my, the start of my pro career. Um, Do you not get nervous before fights? Like those three days, were you not losing yeah, your shit? I was nervous. Okay. I always get nervous. Now I get more nervous because I don't have drugs to make me feel not nervous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, made my pro debut. And then from there, it was like a lot of ups and downs for me. Uh, I started using really heavily. Then I found heroin. I started shooting heroin. I was shooting cocaine. Uh, I went to, can I, can, do you, do you mind if I ask like, 
I mean, I don't know. I, I went to college and like, you know, saw plenty of partying going on and like, you know, you see cocaine usage. I smoke weed. Like I've seen friends take Xanax and all of that stuff, but the leap to like heroin or like 40 Vicodin or Oxycontin a day, like that leap seems crazy kind of from the outside, but what, what, like, how did that transition kind of happen? It was just, it was, you know, it was progressive and, or not progressive, but it was like, um, you know, I just, it just, it's just like a snowball effect. You know, oh, I take two. Uh, well, now I'm used to taking two. I'll take four. Okay. Now like 10. Okay. Vicodin's not really working anymore. I need something stronger. I take Oxycontin. Ooh. And you take, you know, same thing with Oxycontin. And you're like, all right, this isn't working. Now what? Or you start sniffing them. Then you start smoking them. All right. There's only one thing left. I could shoot them. I start shooting them. All right. Oxycontin doesn't work anymore. I'll start shooting heroin. And then you're like, all right, anything I can put in a needle, I'll shoot coke, heroin, crack, ecstasy, molly, uh, ketamine, anything I can put in a needle, I would shoot. Um, Before you like, and again, dude, if I'm like asking anything that isn't cool or whatever, just let me know. I'm uh, just curious. Um, Like before you shot the heroin like that first time do you remember having like a second guess before doing it yeah definitely i was like uh do i really want to do this or what's going to happen to me and and i did it and it was just like uh i remember thinking to myself why the hell was i ever sniffing or swallowing them i should have been shooting this the whole time wow i wasted all my money (laughs) wow uh yeah, because, like, you know, it's stronger. It hits you harder. So it's just it's the devil and it's the devil in drug powder form. Um, so, you know, I, I was in and out of treatment after that. I would go to rehab. I'd come out. I'd relapse. I'd go to rehab. I'd go to detox. I'd end up in hospitals. I'd overdose. Uh, I'd get arrested. Um, I was facing 25 to life at one point for a home invasion robbery, felony battery. I beat that court case because the person that was supposed to testify against me uh, disappeared. Um, then I uh, went away for a long time. I had enough at one point. I just couldn't deal with I was also homeless. I was living on the streets. I was panhandling. I was robbing people. I was doing crazy shit. And I decided to go away. Uh, so I went away for six months. I came out and I had like a bunch of time sober after that. I when you say, up. when you say went away, like. I went to treatment. Like to Yeah. Rehab. Yeah. So I went to this, it's called the therapeutic community. It's almost like it's a, it's like a rehab, but it's more of a behavior modification facility where. You know, there's a lot of crazy things I do there to get you to change your behavior. And it worked for me. It worked. Uh, I was sober for a while. And then I was I was 9 to know as a pro. So in between these times of being sober and high, I would rack up wins. I was 9 to know as a pro. And I was also I was fighting for the CFFC championship. And I was winning the fight, winning the fight. And then I got kneed in the face. And they stopped the fight between the third and fourth rounds. And I went to the hospital. They had to put a huge plate in my face. I was in the head trauma unit for like six days and they were giving me IV uh, morphine and lauded. So when I came out, naturally, I went back to heroin. Um, and then I went on like a run of my life. Like I went insane. I was living hotels on the street. I was like robbing drug dealers. I was like robbing anything or anyone. Um, and then do you remember I, be, like, like when you would do it? Do you remember being like, "Yo," like, and I, I don't like. Do you remember feeling bad about like robbing people, or was it at that point you were so desperate you were willing to do anything? Yeah, like, I didn't really care to be honest. At yeah. that point, at that point, now, now you know I've made amends to a lot of these people. 
yeah where where I could um but you know I was trying to get my next fix you know I'm trying to survive so um it was Christmas Eve 2015 I was in a hotel room right next to Queensbridge right next to where I went to high school uh I overdosed the people next door to me, I guess, heard like a crash. I, I fell into like the desk or something in the room. They called the cop. They called the front desk. They called the cops. The cops came, put me in an ambulance. I woke up in the hospital the next day. I got out, got high one more time because I was like super sick, super dope sick. And then I went to detox. Uh, I had, a, I just was like sick and tired of doing what I was doing. I went to detox and I, um, I've been sober ever since. So you talked about like the the behavior. Congratulations. Um, it's, I don't even know if it's congratulations. Like it's, it's work you've put in and it's probably like, I don't know from what I've read. It's like a one day thing. You don't tell yourself like, yo, I'm going sober from here on out. It's like, yo, I'm going to be sober today and I'll worry about tomorrow later. Um, for the, the behavioral treatment spot that you were talking about. And since you've like kind of been on that real close gray area of like almost going to prison 25 to life, do you think there are a lot of people in prison that could be cured and benefited by that? Like behavioral, behavioral treatment spot. So, or is prison where they need to be? I think some people, yeah, definitely need to be in prison forever. Um, but there are definitely a lot of people, maybe maybe a majority of them that can, I wouldn't call it cured. I would call it being able to get like a daily reprieve from whatever it is, their addictions or their, their behaviors that get them in trouble, you know, like, so you can... You can change yourself to not do these things anymore, or you could have certain things set in place to prevent you from doing these things again. And you could achieve a daily reprieve or even sometimes a minute at a time, 15 minutes at a time, hour at a time. And they could get this reprieve every day so that they achieve lifelong sobriety or whatever behavior modification they need. Um, You know, and like all addictions are similar, you know, like drug addiction, sex addiction, eating addictions, uh, stealing, people are addicted to stealing, people are addicted to hurting, people are addicted to violence. Uh, But you could change yourself, I believe. And you know, for me, like a lot of it's, you know, I'm a big uh, believer in God and a, a higher power or spirituality. And, you know, if you can get yourself spiro- spiritually and emotionally and physically fit, then you should be, you could, you know, keep yourself from causing yourself or other people harm. I want to thank you for like, telling this story and I know that you've gotten good at it and you're able to make it seem really easy. Um, but like the, the truth is it isn't like at all. And, or you make it seem that you're telling it with ease, if that makes uh, sense. There's a lot of practice and, you know, like you said, I've, I've shared my story quite a bit. And, uh, you know, when I first started telling my story, I was pretty bad at telling it, you know, or not bad, but just not, you know, I didn't know how to, portray, how to portray it. So now I think I have a basic, you know, or a pretty good understanding of how to go about telling my story. So, um, but anyone that has a, a background like me and has gotten to a better place, um, you know, can use it to help people and probably has a good, uh, you know, a good basis on how to, to share it. So I would, I kind of want to ask a question like overlapping the two topics, like fighting and then the drug addiction past. And 
I guess it's like, what's the biggest misconception about drug addiction? And then what's the biggest misconception about fighting? You know, people from the outside, they might see it. They might see a, a Breaking Bad TV show. They might watch The Ultimate Fighter. And those are their, like, windows of to see through that life. So now that you've done both, um, like, what are the misconceptions that people just don't understand? Uh, I think with fighting, people look at it like it's, you know, some people look at it like, uh, you know, it's barbaric or whatever, but um it's a sport you know uh boxing obviously was widely accepted before mma was but it's a sport you know yes it's combat sports and we're not playing a game we're fighting a fight so but at the same token it is entertainment for the masses and it is a marketing money-making thing so you know, and as as the, as combat athletes, I think, you know, we get conditioned to these fights and injuries. And so for us, it's kind of just like everyday life. For the naked eye, it might be like, oh, this is insane. But it's a sport. And I think people need to start looking at it more like it's a sport, not some sort of cockfight. Um, for addiction, I think a lot of people think that it's like a moral failing. Like you're making this, you're a drug addict because you're just, you're, you make bad decisions. And yes, I think a lot of drug addiction is a series of bad mistakes that leads you to addiction. And now you have a disease where you can't make choices um, on a logical basis from a logical point or a logical standpoint, like when, when I feel like I need to use heroin, it's because I'm addicted and my body is making me feel sick. So like, I no longer have the choice of, eh, I don't want to do heroin today. Like, no, I have to do heroin today. If I want to like get up and do what I got to do, or if I want to not feel like I have a flu times a thousand with coupled with depression and mental anxiety and mental anguish. So, you know, I think a lot of people look at it like, cause I've seen people that, you know, talk down to addicts like, Oh, you're just a junkie. Like you're a piece of crap or whatever. And it's like, usually these people have a resentment towards someone that hurt them. And that person had an addiction. So they, cause I've had that situation where people say something to me and I'm like, man, are you holding a resentment towards someone? Yeah. My dad was a heroin addict and he ruined our lives. Oh, so you're mad at someone that had this disease. If you had a friend or a father or a family member that had cancer, would you tell them, Oh, you had cancer and our, we have to spend all our money to, to save you. And now you ruined our lives. Would you say that to someone? <laughs> No, you wouldn't. Yeah. But because drugs are have a bad stigma, you know, people look at addicts like like they're making an everyday choice to fuck their lives up. When this person was a baby at one point. This was a child who was just innocent, who was never addicted. They were a teenager and they fell into something that ruined their lives and now they don't have the choice to not use anymore or to not steal because they need to steal to feel better so they can get their next fix or whatever. So do fighters ever come up to you and say like, Hey Jared, um, like I'm going through something. Oh yeah. Do you, any re Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. All the time. fighting, fighting draws a, like an interesting breed of people at times. And definitely. And I would imagine, guy, like you being so open about it, it like it probably serves as an opening for them as well. Man, I get people that come to me and they write out, tell me like, "Yo, I'm going through this," or "I'm addicted to this," or uh, is that extra motivation for you? Yeah, I mean, that's why I do. You know, I I fight to use my platform to help other people. 
Um, but like, then sometimes people come to me, they're like, Hey, uh, man, what, what you do is great. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you about it. And I'm like, are, are you going through something right now? And I can tell they are dealing with something, but they're like, no, 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 no. So like some people don't want to come out and tell me like, yeah, I'm, I drink every night. That's the only way I can go to sleep or yeah. Like I'm taking handfuls of pills right now. Uh, some people will just tell me right out like, yo, I'm like, I'm so addicted to whatever. Um, so I think, uh, but you know, it's 2021, the world is becoming accepting of a lot of different things. So, um, I think it's becoming more widely understood and accepted and help is being given more freely and, you know, to people that can't afford it or can afford it. So I think, uh, we've made a lot of progress, obviously the war on drugs will never end. So, uh, addiction will always be here. And then we have substances that are legal, weed, alcohol. So what know. do you like, what do you make of weed? Like being, cause I am like, I smoke every day. I'm in California. Like what do you kind of like make of that? And even like in fighting, like they're trying to like the Nate Diaz rule, like they're trying to almost not allow it during a fight but as close yeah. to that as possible like what's your stance on all those changes uh i mean i think it could be just like anything else like um moderation whatever if you're smoke pot every day and it's like ruining you then you should probably stop smoking pot you know like if it makes you lazy if you don't go to work because you, you skip work to like smoke a joint or or like, oh, I had to do this, but I forgot because I was high. Or, you know, like, oh, like my eating is out of control because I smoke pot all day long. Then, yeah, maybe you should like cut back a little bit. But there are people who have cancer and other diseases who use marijuana. And if it helps you, then great. Um, I mean, they've been selling pain pills forever, legally. And, you know, how many people do you know that were addicted to pain pills? So, uh, no, I don't have a problem with medical marijuana, there's a weed, there's a weed shop, like right outside of my house in Florida. Weed is legal here now too. Um, it's not as widely sold as like Colorado, California, but, uh, there's weed stores or where medicinal marijuana, marijuana stores popping up all over Florida. So, and we're a red state. So, I mean, yeah, I think, man, if I could smoke pot and not go shoot heroin, I would, but for me, like, I'll smoke pot and then I'll be like, eh, this, this is for pussies. Let it's go, not enough. Yeah. Let me go like shoot some cocaine and like go rob someone. So, Does, like, do you walk, like, do, do you walk into the cage? Like, like with an in, invincibility feeling like, yo, I've been through way worse than anything that's going to happen tonight type of deal. Like this is yeah. nothing compared to what else I've been through. Yeah, I mean, like, for me, it's like, all right, like, it's all in God's hands. I came prepared as I possibly can be. Uh, most of the time, I'm the better man. So, um, you know, I've had some fights with some of the top guys in the world who are ranked right now, and I, you know, didn't come out on top. But for me, that doesn't mean anything. It's just, uh, but yeah, like, you know, you can go into a fight, anything can happen. But I've been there, done that multiple nights where I've ended up in the hospital or I've had fights where I knock you out in the first minute and like I come out without a scratch. So, uh, fighting is for me is like, it's what I do. It's what I love. It's the way I make a living and it's the way I, I'm able to use my platform to help other people. So the longer I win, the better, the more I can help people, the more, the bigger platform I have. And obviously, you know, the better my career gets. So, um, yeah, like I don't go in there thinking I'm invincible, but I go in there very confident. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's so interesting. Like you're able to talk about it so casually and it like, it makes it easier almost for someone like myself or like my mom and dad who are going to listen to this podcast or whatever, you know, when I tell them like, Oh, I had this crazy story that was told and. I think when you say it, like there's, it becomes empathetic. Like I can understand a little bit like where you're coming from and, and 
may or maybe it's that I understand that I don't understand where you're coming from. Like right. at some point you have to understand that there's going to be people that live different lives than you, you do. Um, so Jer, I want to thank you for that. If you don't mind, I've got like just a few more like MMA ish related questions. If no that's problem. cool. I, I know I've taken up 45 minutes of your time, so I hope you don't it's got too good. much. Okay, cool. Um, uh, so you've, it seems like you formed a pretty nice relationship with Bilal Muhammad and it's, at least you two joke a lot. Yeah, there it is right there. Actually, I didn't even, I literally didn't even see that before, but, um, how did that kind of come about or like, what's the common denominator between you two that makes you guys like such good buddies? Well, we were teammates and we were, we were roommates. Okay. I lived with him for like close to two years. And when was that, uh, time? From 2018 to, to, to last year. So, yeah, we obviously got close. We were living together. So, uh, and we just get along, you know, and we're, uh, that's like one of my best friends. So, um, he's obviously got a a big fight coming up. And I just would be curious, like, what's his most outstanding attribute? Like in the gym, like, What's something that he does that no one else in the gym can do? Well, so I, I'll give you two. One that has nothing to do with what he does in the gym or in the cage, but um, I think he's like he, as far as fighting, his his ability to push the pace and mix it up really, really well. He'll kick you, punch you, knee you, elbow you, but he could also wrestle and submit you. And he's always in your face. He's always in shape. He's always going to be there. You know, you can punch him, kick him right dead in the face. And if you don't knock him out, then he's right on you. So uh, his, his, his ability to push the pace and, and uh, you know, get you backing up and you know, he sets the tone of the fight. So like his last fight, he just set the tone right away. And uh, Lima just, you know, he fought a good fight, but he folded under the pressure. So I think that's his, his biggest attribute is being able to mix it up and constantly push the pace. I mean, there uh, weren't, there's not many guys that are going to, I mean, I don't know. Like it seemed like Lima was delivering some leg kicks and was, yeah. dude, Bilal just walks through that shit. And it's like, he wasn't, hit it all and he just at least his poker face is unbelievable he doesn't yeah. wear anything like he just continues his mission it's remarkable yeah well that's part of what I, what I mean is that he just keeps coming like yeah it's gonna be a, you're gonna you're gonna be in for a fight when you fight Bilal so <laughs> um but his biggest attribute is his uh his you know belief in in God and his uh his faith that's his. That's what I truly believe. That's his biggest uh, attribute. He's. It's all about God, for him and his faith and his. His, you know, that's just that's his thing. Like he, he's constantly, in prayer and in faith, and uh, I think that's his biggest, you know. You not only are you fighting God, but you're fighting Allah. When, I mean, not only are you fighting Bilal, but you're fighting Allah when you fight when you fight Bilal. So it's like uh, that's his that's his thing. Um, do you have a Bible verse? You got a recommendation for me to to read this week? Um, man, there's a couple that I like. Joshua one nine, it's a great one. Check that okay. one out. Um. And then, I mean, uh, that's one of my favorites. Um, maybe, you know, um, I forget the exact verse, but it's Philippians. It's what's tattooed on John Jones' chest. I could, okay. I could, do, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe that, you know. I mean, I was able to get through all of the crap I went through because of my belief in God and Jesus, so. Um, that's also another reason why me and Bilal are so close. Like, obviously we pray to different gods, but, uh, 
he knows that I'm a man of God and he's a man of God. So we carry that same, you know, aura around us and bond. Uh, so I think, you know, we respect each other's religions and it's just something that we, we share in common. Um, it's not anytime soon per se, but like five years down the road, 10 years down the road, as you wrap up like your MMA fighting career, do you want to go on and be a coach? Do you want to go on and work in like a drug addiction um, rehab type program? What, what are your kind of career aspirations when you wrap up fighting? I have a lot of aspirations. I mean, I, I would like to be involved in all sorts of things. Uh, um, yeah, I want to do something in recovery as far as maybe not necessarily like in a rehab, but, you know, public speaking, um, anything that where I could reach like a, a broad audience, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, coaching – I don't know if I want to be a coach or not. I can't really tell you that. I like coaching. I like helping people, but I don't know if I want to be in like a gym every day. Um, but I'd like to be involved in a lot of different things, like different businesses. Me and my brother have some going on. Uh, he is that young? Is that younger bro or older, older bro? My older brother. He's in recovery as well. Uh, but you know, there's all sorts of real estate, all sorts of different things i'd like to get involved in so awesome jared i think that's all i got for you today um i would love to talk to you again like down the road um whatever it may be you're you're good people man evan uh who hooked this up like said you'd be really chill and like it's honestly like even from my perspective i'm not the one telling the story but it's still like intimidating um to like prepare for this and just make sure I'm getting like my details right. And I don't know it feels like there's a lot on the line and there's a lot of responsibility that I was trying to take, like when doing this. So um, I, I just want to thank you, man, for being so open and honest and transparent with all this stuff. And again, like we talked fighting, but there was just like so much more at stake and I, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to, to talk about that stuff with you. Thanks bro. Appreciate it. Yeah. So best of luck. Like whenever the, the fight announcement comes, like whatever the news may be, um, whenever it may be, I have no doubt it'll be very fun, exciting. People will be very excited to tune in. So um, just want to thank you, man. Really, really do appreciate it. Thank you. Seriously. All right. Enjoy the, uh, enjoy the rest of your week and uh, we'll talk soon, brother. All right, man. This is 1.37 p.m. Own your future. Start this minute. 1.37 p.m. is a Gallery Media Group original production.